Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it, or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode, whatever. I guarantee your response, alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? Buying concert tickets used to be easy, or at least theoretically. You saw a show you wanted to see, you went down to the box office, plunked down some cash on a counter, and in exchange were given a couple of stiff pieces of paper with some words on them. When it came time for the show, you presented those pieces of paper to a person at the door who tore them in half, and then you went inside to enjoy the gig. It really was that simple. Again, in theory. It wasn't, but uh, we'll get to that. As time went on, buying concert tickets got more complicated. You bought them through the mail. There were credit cards, barcodes, and then the local ticket sellers vanished, replaced by a big mega-corporation. Physical box offices started disappearing. The internet came along with online sales. We had to deal with scalpers and the secondary market and bots. And all the while, concerts and touring became big, big, big business. These days, buying concert tickets is really confusing. You still exchange money for admission to gigs, but the experience has very little in common with the so-called good old days which, again, as we'll see, weren't so good. Stay with me. I'm going to give you the honest truth about concert tickets. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to talk about concert tickets. And it's a very simple idea. A concert ticket is a receipt, a proof of purchase, a voucher for the privilege of being admitted to an event. And it comes in the form of a token of some sort, a piece of paper, a barcode, a magnetic stripe, a printout, an RFID chip, even an ink stamp on your wrist. It might cost money or it might be free. It might tell you where you can stand or sit, or it may allow you free range of the event. Where it's really weird is acquiring that ticket, that, that receipt, that voucher, how much you pay for it, 
and what you can do with it once you buy it. The whole transaction is a lot trickier and far more complex than you probably realize. In fact, it's going to take us a whole hour to explain the truth about concert tickets. And along the way, we'll have an excuse to hear some cool live recordings. Let's start at the very beginning when tickets were sold at box offices. These were physical locations manned by actual human beings. You would go to the box office, choose your seats based on the location or price or date or whatever, hand over your money, and get your paper tickets in return. If the concert was in high demand, you'd often have to line up and wait for the box office to open at the appointed hour on the appointed day. That could get weird. You might have to line up for hours or even days. Most of the time, the box office was inside a building like a theater or arena or department store. And standing in line did not guarantee you anything. Scalpers would hire people to stand in line for them, supplying them with enough money to buy the maximum number of tickets per person. There could be dozens of those guys in line ahead of you. The box office could run out of their allotted number of tickets. And you also had to hope that everybody would respect your place in line, even when the doors finally opened. Fat chance for that happening. For the longest time, the rule for buying concert tickets was stampede and those who survived got tickets. There were often multiple box offices in multiple locations, and since all the tickets were pre-printed, you had to guess which window or even which location had access to the best seats. That was always a gamble. For example, if you're of a certain vintage, let's just put it that way, you might remember ticket sellers called Attractions Box Office or Celebrity Box Office, ABO and CBO for short. They were often inside department stores. Oh, which one to choose? Which location? Which window? You might get an okay ticket, but then your buddy across town who went to a different location might get front row. There was no way to tell. These problems started to go away with the advent of computerized ticket sellers. One such seller was Ticket Reservation Systems, Inc., which became known as Ticketron. This was 1969. They were the first to use electronic box offices that eliminated the need for pre-printed tickets that were then randomly distributed to physical box offices. The other big name to come along was Ticketmaster, which was established in Arizona in 1976. Through expansion and acquisition, Ticketmaster has become the largest primary seller of tickets in the known universe. In fact, they bought Ticketron in 1991. There are other primary ticket sellers out there like Ticketfly and a few others, but Ticketmaster is king, so we'll end up talking about them quite a bit. Their virtual monopoly on concert sales has resulted in a number of legal actions, most famously by Pearl Jam in 1994. They wanted to go on tour with tickets below $20 and a service charge of no more than $1.80. Ticketmaster said, no, we, we have to charge at least $2 to cover our costs. Despite a good fight, testimony before the U.S. Congress, and an attempt to circumvent Ticketmaster's ticket-selling network, it didn't work. The case accusing Ticketmaster of being anti-competitive collapsed in 1995, and now Ticketmaster is owned by Live Nation, the biggest concert promoter in the world, so their grip on things is even tighter. There have been other legal challenges, but Ticketmaster remains the number one seller of concert tickets anywhere. And now, even Pearl Jam uses them. Now that we know who sells us concert tickets, let's look at pricing. 
Determining how much a ticket should cost is a tricky thing that involves all manner of economic projections, guesswork, and more than a little voodoo. Ticketmaster, and again, we're going to stick with them because that's the biggest ticket seller in the universe and the one we use the most. Ticketmaster signs deals with venues as the agent that will sell tickets to shows in those venues. Ticketmaster becomes the ticket vendor and the venue is the client. When a band goes on tour, the artist manager will negotiate with a promoter about staging a tour. This, of course, includes how much the act wants to make from a tour, how much money they want to make. That's worked out to a show-by-show basis because each market is different. What is the seat inventory? Is there general admission? What kind of demand will there be for that supply? What's the maximum box office gross for each date? The promoter then crunches all the numbers to determine how many tickets need to be sold at what price for the promoter to turn a profit. What will the hard costs be to stage a show? Well, that number usually takes up between 30 and 50% of the price of a ticket. Of the remainder, about 85% will go to the act, and the promoter will keep about 15%. At this point, the artist may be given an advance to cover startup costs for their tour, which covers everything from renting gear to designing the stage to hiring roadies and renting trucks. Depending on the situation, the promoter also may give the act a guarantee, which is just like it sounds, a guaranteed amount of money per show or maybe even for the entire tour. And then it's up to the promoter to somehow make back that guarantee and then turn a profit. You with me so far? All this information goes into setting face value for tickets for any given show. Pricing may be tiered with better seats costing more than nosebleeds. Ticketmaster is then given its marching orders about ticket prices, which remember are set by the promoter and not Ticketmaster and information about the on-sale dates. This is where Ticketmaster adds a service fee. This fee covers Ticketmaster's costs and a tiny profit for their role in distributing tickets. Something called a venue fee might also be added to the ticket. This money goes to the venue to help cover its costs, electricity, security, staffing, so on. That is not Ticketmaster's call. This is what the venue says it needs to cover its costs and to make a little profit. And then comes taxes, which also may include special amusement taxes in certain jurisdictions in addition to regular sales taxes. Now, again, let me be very clear because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Ticketmaster has almost nothing to do with the price of a concert ticket other than their service fee. Yet it actually gets all the blame. Fans get angry at Ticketmaster for the high price of concert tickets, blaming the company for gouging them. This is completely by design. Ticketmaster acts as a deflector of criticism away from the artist for the high cost of the ticket. The act is then insulated from most of the fans' wrath and appears to be the good cop in the equation. Clever, huh? Now let's talk about the moment of selling and buying tickets. Buying concert tickets has turned into one of the most unpleasant, frustrating, and disagreeable financial transactions there is. Why? Well, let's start with the law of supply and demand. For a hot show or tour, there is always going to be more demand than there are tickets. It is inevitable that people will be disappointed because of a quick sellout. 
Take the Tragically Hip Tour in the summer of 2016. There were 200,000 tickets available, but 4 million people tried to buy them. I'm not very good at math, but 4 million does not fit evenly into 200,000. People were going to be angry no matter what. But we also need to know how those 200,000 tickets were allocated. Did they all really go on sale to the public? The answer is no. Let's look at a hypothetical situation in which a major act has been booked to play a venue with a stated capacity of 15,000 seats. Where do all those 15,000 tickets go? The first thing you need to know is that not all concert tickets go on sale at the same time. Promoters routinely release blocks of tickets over time as they try to gauge demand for a particular show. If demand is high, more blocks of tickets may be released, and those later blocks may have prices adjusted upwards. Again, supply and demand. This is the silent hand of the market. This is the way capitalism works. Then we have something called holdbacks. Before the general public gets to buy tickets at, say, 10 a.m. on a Friday, tickets are taken out of the pool for special purposes. For example, if the act has a fan club that offers early access to tickets, those need to be pulled from our pile of 15,000. Then there are the credit card offers like American Express's front of the line. An estimate is made of how many people may buy tickets that way, so they're pulled from the pile. Radio stations and other media outlets will be given tickets for contesting purposes. Remove those from the pile. Same thing for tickets requested by the record label. Oh, and the band and their guest list and the venue and their guest list and sponsors. All of those are taken from that original pile of 15,000 tickets. And the number of holdback tickets is constantly shifting as demand requires as we get closer to the show. So in the end, how many of those 15,000 tickets are actually available for sale when the clock hits 10 o'clock on Friday morning and the general public can get in on the action? Maybe half? but probably less. So while you were thinking you were competing for 15,000 tickets, you might be competing for 7,000 or 6,000 or 5,000. You starting to see the issue? Here's a hint that will improve your chances of getting tickets to a big concert. Sign up for the Axe Fan Club. Sign up for a local radio station's listener club. And consider getting a credit card that comes with advanced ticket buying privileges. None of these things will guarantee you a ticket, but you'll be way ahead of the people who wait for the general on-sale date. This whole program deals with the truth about concert tickets. And the hope is that by the time we're done, you'll understand why buying concert tickets is such a horrible consumer experience and why little, if anything, can be done about it under the current circumstances. This is when we need to talk about bots, software programs that elbow their way past us poor meatbags to snap up thousands of tickets in seconds. How does this happen? First of all, you need to know that Ticketmaster's computerized systems can process thousands of transactions per minute. Bots take advantage of this by going through the ticket buying process exponentially faster than any human. Okay, wait, hold on back up. We have to go back to the turn of the century when a guy named Ken Lawson took a hard look at how Ticketmaster and other sellers were getting into the business of closing down physical kiosks and outlets and moving their selling business exclusively online. 
He already had a company called WiseGuy that specialized in acquiring hard-to-get tickets and started thinking about how to beat these new computerized systems. He found a 17-year-old programmer in Bulgaria who knew that computers could be much faster than humans when it came to following the online purchase prompts. WiseGuy started using this kid's software and was soon gobbling up tickets to big shows all over the continent. Some were sold directly to clients, while others were sold to brokers and scalpers, and the public ended up paying prices far, far above face value. In 2005, WiseGuy hauled in $2.5 million on just one U2 tour. The company spent $200,000 to buy 5,000 memberships in U2's fan club, which was giving fans early access to discounted tickets. But instead of going to fans, WiseGuy scalped them to whoever had the dosh. If you remember that tour, this was the Vertigo tour, you may remember the outcry from fans about not being able to get a coveted spot inside the inner stage ring. A big reason? Ken Lawson, wise guy, and that bot program coded by the kid in Bulgaria. Here are a few more things you need to know about the early scalper bots. And we're talking about, you know, early 2000s. Companies like WiseGuy figured out ways to bypass Ticketmaster's security features. For example, we've all seen the CAPTCHA security challenges where you have to enter a series of letters and numbers in a field to prove that you're human. Now, you would think that Ticketmaster and other sellers would use a near infinite numbers of character combinations, right? Well, no. Lawson and others discovered that Ticketmaster only used about 30,000 combinations. WiseGuy's people simply copied every combination as a JPEG file and entered them all into a database. And then after that, their bots had little trouble breaking through the codes using brute force. Ticketmaster had no idea. They didn't change their capture codes for years, allowing bots to suck up millions of concert tickets. Even when WiseGuy was busted by the FBI, there were many others ready to take its place. And this bot software is now really, really cheap. It takes about five seconds to Google some of this software. Some cost less than a hundred bucks, while other packages are sold for up to a hundred thousand dollars. I've heard of operations where hundreds of modems and computers are set up, each ready to hammer Ticketmaster or whomever, thousands of times a second whenever tickets go on sale. And while the capture code situation has improved, they're not as secure as you might think. Ask any programmer about advances made in optical character recognition and artificial intelligence. Now, I need to stress that Ticketmaster hates bots. I've talked to them at length about this. As I told you earlier, they get enough grief over pricing and fees. Their job as a ticket agent is to put fans in seats. And while bots may buy up loads of tickets and help Ticketmaster fulfill the financial end of their obligation, there is no guarantee that those tickets will ever be used by human beings. No artist, no promoter ever wants to see blocks of empty seats, even though they know those seats were sold. They want, they expect, they demand that Ticketmaster deliver them real, live fans. Ticketmaster is throwing loads of technology at the problem of bots, and it really is an arms race. The more security they erect, the more the bot programmers find ways around them. In 2016, Ticketmaster thwarted 5 billion bot hits. But even then, the best success rate they had at some venues was 90%. The bot builders keep finding ways to circumvent the system. Hello. 
So if concert ticket buying bots are evil, why can't they just be made illegal? Governments all over the world, Canada, the US, Australia, Ireland, UK, they're all trying with anti-bot laws. But because the internet knows no borders, operators can just move to places where they can attack those jurisdictions from the outside. The next hard truth we must talk about is the secondary ticket market. Now, you may have assumptions about how this all works, and I am going to bet that you're going to have a bunch of those assumptions absolutely destroyed in the next couple of minutes. I've saved the most miserable for last, the secondary ticket market. Let's go through this carefully. The secondary market is where you go to buy a concert ticket after the venue says that it's sold out. Ticketmaster, and we'll keep talking about them because they're the biggest ticket seller, they have no more tickets. But you still want to go to the show. Who's got tickets? Well, first, let's go back to the bots. They've sucked up vast numbers of tickets, and their operators are either selling the tickets themselves at vastly inflated prices, of course, or they sold them on to brokers. In other words, the bot operators are wholesalers. They buy the tickets, sell them on at a markup, and leave the final transaction and the final price to the broker, the scalper. These brokers can be small fish, or they can be big-time operations like StubHub. Now, a quick aside about StubHub. Urban legend has it that it is owned by Ticketmaster. Not true. StubHub is owned by, wait for it, eBay. StubHub promotes itself as an online ticket exchange company. You got tickets you can't use but would like to sell? Use StubHub. Looking to buy tickets? Use StubHub. So here's where I offer a defense of companies like StubHub. The secondary ticket market as a whole serves as an insurance policy for you. Tickets to a big show may go on sale up to a year in advance. Let's say you get tickets. Who can say where you'll be or what you'll be up to or what your situation will be on the day of a show a year from now? If something comes up and you can't sell or give away your tickets to friends, you can use a company like StubHub to get your money back or even make a little money, which in today's environment could mean hundreds or even thousands of dollars in reimbursement. Oh, and speaking of long lead times, why are tickets for some shows sold so far in advance? Well, there's a number of reasons. An artist may be super hot, best plan a tour for the future to seize on the present opportunity, because in six or eight months or whatever, that heat may have dissipated and that artist won't be able to sell as many tickets at as high a price. Second, money collected way in advance of a show can be invested to earn interest in the interim. If you have a sold-out stadium show with a box office gross of, say, $4 million, you can earn a nice little profit by dumping that cash into some kind of interest-bearing vehicle. Hey, you know what? Every little bit counts. Margins can be really, really thin. And I will admit that there is a conspiracy theory that kind of works into this. Acts and promoters know what their holdbacks are when the tickets originally go on sale. They have their own allotment of tickets. Might they put those tickets up for sale on StubHub or somewhere else to earn a little extra money? In other words, would these bands scalp their own tickets? Not officially, but... Let's continue with this discussion of the secondary concert ticket market. 
Have you ever gone looking for tickets for a show before they go on sale, only to find some already available on the secondary market? How is that possible? That just reeks of some kind of corruption, right? Those tickets do not exist. The entity placing that ad is merely offering a promise that such a ticket will be available. The seller is confident enough in their sources that they're willing to offer what we'll call speculative buying. In other words, they are fishing for suckers. But let's say you bite. You may in fact end up with the tickets as advertised. Or you may end up with slightly different tickets. Or vastly different tickets. Or you may get scammed entirely and lose your money. You may also wonder how ticket prices are set on the secondary market. Well, they're guesstimates based on the law of supply and demand. And pricing is very dynamic. Depending on the heat surrounding a particular show, prices may go up or prices may go down. If something happens and the act goes cold, sellers drop their prices in hopes of unloading them. Sometimes prices will even drop below the original face value. But if the act suddenly gets hot, you can count on prices to go up. Now, here is a tip. If you are desperate to see that sold-out show, monitor prices on the secondary market in the weeks leading up to the gig. About 50% of all buying activity on the secondary market happens in the last 48 hours before the show. At that point, it becomes a battle of nerves. Do you jump in now and risk paying more than you have to? Or do you wait, hoping to score a better deal the closer the show gets? Welcome to buying concert tickets in the 21st century. All of this tells us loads about how concert tickets are being mispriced from the very beginning. Remember how we talked about how the band and the manager and the promoter all negotiate? If people are willing to pay X dollars for a ticket on the secondary market 24 hours before a show starts, isn't that the real market value of that ticket? Economics will tell us yes. So why aren't tickets priced at that level in the first place? It's very simple. Artists and promoters are loath to come across as greedy to their fans, so they don't want to appear to be charging too much for a ticket. They cannot be seen to be gouging fans. At the same time, the industry still needs more meaningful data when it comes to pricing tickets appropriately. Meanwhile, they just let Ticketmaster and scalpers take the heat. Then there's the human angle. An artist does not want to price a ticket too high for, let's say, a brand new 17-year-old fan, which is the kind of person the act wants as a follower throughout a long career. Charging that kid $200 for a ticket is not going to help turn that person into a lifelong fan. You want to cultivate a fan base. You want to have people with you your entire career. And again, we come back to this idea of the secondary market being an insurance policy. If 5,000 tickets were purchased by a bot operator, at least those tickets are recorded as sold. The promoter, the band, don't lose money. Doesn't look good, but at least they're not losing money on those tickets. There are many people vying to fix the situation with concert tickets. What about putting a cap on the price of a concert ticket on the secondary market? Some jurisdictions want to cap profiteering at, say, 50%. That is a dumb idea for a lot of reasons. 
First of all, it's just going to make it easier for people who could already afford to buy tickets on the secondary market. Second, it's going to force some aspects of the secondary market further underground, where there are zero consumer protections. Say what you want about StubHub, but at least there are some protections for the buyers and the sellers. Third, the idea of a cap does nothing to address the law of supply and demand. Price caps just distort the marketplace and don't make it any easier for anyone to get tickets. And finally, what's so special about a concert tickets? I would love there to be a cap on the price of a liter of gas, but that's never going to happen. I would love for there to be a cap on airfare so I don't have to pay $750 to fly a thousand miles to see my parents. But we know that's not going to happen either. You got to let the marketplace sort things out. One of the better ideas I've heard is from a company called Ticket Guardian. Their idea is to offer concert ticket insurance. Their plan works like this. When you buy your tickets, you opt in for insurance. Let's say three bucks per ticket. That insurance is in place right up until showtime. If you can't use your ticket for whatever reason, you enter the number of that ticket into the Ticket Guardian app and bam, that ticket is invalidated your full purchase price gets credited to your credit card, and now the promoter has that ticket, which can be sold at the going market rate. Seems fair to me. That's certainly way better than having your ticket's barcode tied to just you, making it impossible for you to easily transfer the ticket to someone else. Well, that's a whole other thing, making concert tickets transferable. Well, we got to leave that discussion for another time. As you can see, every issue surrounding concert tickets is complex and miserable. There are no easy solutions because it all comes down to that pesky thing called supply and demand. There will always be more bums than there are seats. You got to be lucky. You got to have the cash and it doesn't hurt to have the connections. That's the way it is, at least for now. I somehow expect that this program will generate a lot of feedback. If you would like to discuss the complexities of the concert ticket market, feel free to reach out to alan at alancross.ca. You can also find me through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Google+. And I also spend a lot of time updating my official webpage, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It also comes with a free daily newsletter featuring all kinds of music news and information in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every day. And don't forget about all the podcasts. As soon as an episode runs on the radio, it gets turned into a podcast. You can subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.